I'm Elena Salinas, software engineer and host of the Women in Tech show, technical interviews with prominent women in tech. Web and mobile applications can become more popular than we had anticipated. If we're not prepared, our application can have downtime. If we are prepared, it means that our application can scale. Scaling an application comes with numerous challenges. One of those is how we reason about system performance and how that influences architecture changes we make to our system. Kay Osterhout, software engineer at Lightstep, explains what performance means and why users struggle to reason about it in today's systems. Kay discusses her work on Apache Spark and how jobs were decomposed to provide clarity about performance to users. We also talked about detecting bottlenecks in a system. Before we get on with the show, I'd like to thank Blind for being a sponsor of the show. Blind is an anonymous app for tech workers to discuss, debate, and talk about compensation, corporate policies, workplace harassment, and more. I've used it for over a year and found it really helpful. There are 50,000 companies active on Blind. Check if yours is there and connect with other employees. Blind is available for iOS, Android, and online at teamblind.com. Go to teamblind.com to download the app. Thank you. Kay Osterhout, software engineer at Lightstep, is joining us today. Kay, welcome to the show. Thank you. During your PhD at Berkeley, you co-author a paper titled Performance Clarity as a First Class Design Principle. And this paper begins with the following sentence. Users often struggle to reason about the performance of today's systems. So I want to begin by defining what performance means and what does it encompass? Yeah, sure. So in the context of that paper, we were thinking mostly about resource usage. So if a user is running a workload on some system, do they understand what is causing their workload to take the amount of time that it's taking? And specifically, is it that it's spending a lot of time using the network or it's spending a lot of time using disk or it's spending a lot of time using the CPU? Mm -hmm. So you mentioned three components, network, disk, and CPU, right? Mm -hmm. And what are the metrics that can be measured associated to these three things? So the traditional way that people have measured performance of these things is to use machine level metrics. So look at things like my machine is, my CPU on my machine is 50% utilized and uh, the network is fully saturated or something like that. And one of the insights from the work that we did is that these metrics aren't sufficient when you have these systems that are running many different workloads at the same time. Because the problem is if the CPU is very highly utilized, it's hard for me to know if that's what's causing my workload to be slow or if you're running something on the same machine and you're using a lot of CPU and actually my workload isn't using any CPU at all. So I should say also, I guess, taking a step back, the kind of thesis underlying the project was that it's very difficult for users to reason about performance in general. Like they have a hard time understanding what's going on when they're running these complex systems. And the thing that we focused on was CPU and uh, network and disk sort of untangling resource usage. But I think sort of more broadly, this broader issue, this broader thing is a major challenge. And we focused on just resource usage to kind of narrow the 
scope of the work to make progress in one particular area, but I think more broadly understanding performance in a bunch of different ways is also something that's very difficult and that I think is important to think about. Yes, and we'll get into the details of why it was hard in just a bit. First, I want to also talk in general about the many choices of configuring systems now with the cloud being more accessible to many people with For example, Amazon's AWS EC2 users can launch applications. And these systems come with many configuration choices that can affect the performance. Can you talk about some examples of those choices that users can make that can impact performance? Yeah, sure. So the biggest choice that users can make now is what kind of machine do they want to use? Like, do they want to use a machine with one core and eight disks or a machine with a lot of cores and just a small number of disks? And do they want to use spinning disks or do they want to pay extra to get flash drives? Is that something that's worthwhile? The availability of the cloud has changed has just dramatically increased the number of choices that people have. Because it used to be that you would run your workload in a data center that your company owned. And, you know, maybe once every two or three years, you might think about changing the hardware, but the machine configuration was pretty much fixed. And now in five minutes, I can change the kind of machine that my workload is running on. So this is good because it's a huge opportunity for users. They have a huge amount of power to improve the performance of the workload that they're running themselves just by using a different kind of machine. But it's also a huge risk in the sense that I can pick something that's wrong or that causes my workload to be really slow, and it's not always easy for me to even understand that that's happened or that I'm getting much worse performance than I might be able to be getting otherwise. And what can end up happening is the person just ends up getting more machines and it affects the costs. Yeah, so they'll get more machines or they just are paying much more than they need to. Like there's a different kind, they could actually be using a much cheaper kind of machine. Say they've paid for a lot of disks, but they're not using them at all. Or also just users spend a lot of time trying to think about this and understand, or maybe they do a bunch of experiments and run their workload on five different machines. And then maybe you've spent two weeks of engineering time to save a little bit of money, but that's still its own cost. And these are some of the hardware changes that can impact performance. What about some of the software choices? So I think for software, one thing that's changed a lot is that today's systems are made up of many different pieces of software. Like increasingly, given piece of software really looks more like glue, like it's taking a bunch of different systems and tying them together. Like to use one example, a lot of my research was around Apache Spark, which is this framework for large-scale data processing. And Spark itself is built on many other systems. Like you can read data from Hadoop distributed file system, or you can read data from Kafka, or there are a bunch of other choices. And the reason this matters is because there's this kind of exponential growth in the number of parameters that you need to think about. Like I'm setting the configuration for Spark, but I'm also setting the configuration for whatever system I'm using to input data and whatever system I'm using for messaging and so on. And so again, it just means that users have dramatically more choices when they're thinking about how to configure their system than they used to. And in addition to this, we can have things like serializing the data, right? And maybe compressing something. Yeah, exactly. So all of these things are sort of choices that a user needs to make for how they want their system to work. And these choices can have huge impact on performance. Like just sort of anecdotally with users running Spark workloads, 
I think once the system had stabilized, the biggest performance improvements that people saw were typically things that they did themselves. Like they realized they should use a different serializer or a different kind of compression. They weren't changes that came from sort of Spark fundamentally getting faster. You mentioned Apache Spark and you said it's a large scale data analytics framework and this was your main focus of your thesis work. Can you explain in more detail what Apache Spark is and what is it used for? Yeah, so at a very high level, the problem that it's solving is that users want to analyze massive amounts of data. And when I say massive amounts of data, what I mean is it's too much data to store or to process efficiently on one machine. So sometimes that means it's actually data I could store on my laptop, but it might take three days to do the processing that I want to do. And sometimes it's data that's so big, you know, it's many petabytes that I couldn't store it on one machine. So the goal of Spark is to allow users to provide sort of a simple description of the computation they want to do. The same sort of description I might write if I were writing a, say, Python program on my computer to analyze it. But then Spark handles scaling this. So Spark sort of under the covers will take the computation that I've described and it will distribute it over a cluster of machines and run that computation on my data and then aggregate the results and return it back to a user. Can you give an example of something a user might compute through Spark? So the most simple example and the easiest one to think about is if a user just wants to count everything in their data set. And so the way that frameworks like Apache Spark and then also Hadoop work is that the data set is typically itself already broken up into a bunch of different pieces and stored on a different machine. And if you wanted to do something very simple like count, it's sort of easy to see how Spark might work. It tells each machine to count a part of the data set. So each machine counts just the records that it's storing. And then all of those results are returned to this one centralized component that will add all of those counts. So that's kind of the simplest thing that's very easily parallelizable. The other important sort of primitive that Spark provides is this operation called a shuffle, which is basically just rearranging all of the data. So an example that you can think about for this is if a user has a huge data set and they want to count the number of times that each word occurs. The way that that would work is first the machines would do this shuffle where they essentially reorganize the data such that each machine is getting the counts for one word. So I might send all of the, say the word the to one machine, and I might send the word podcast to a different machine. So that's the shuffle is this big reorganization over the network. And then once that happens, each machine can again do this local calculation of just adding up all of the counts for the particular word. What about the data, for example, you mentioned counts. Is the data like logs of requests or what kind of data can people put on in Spark? Yeah, this was one of the sort of key aspects of these systems is that they make basically no assumptions about the kind of data that you're storing. So it could be a text file with a bunch of logs. Um, it could be very commonly users have data that's essentially a table. So it has a bunch of rows with different columns, like a row might be a person and the columns might be their name and their age and where they live and what their job is. So you can store really any kind of data and then analyze it with Spark. At the beginning, we mentioned that it's hard for users to reason about performance. And again, in this paper, performance clarity as a first class principle, it mentions parallel tasks perform the computation in different blocks of data and that each task uses something called fine grained pipelining to parallelize the use of multiple resources. Can you explain what 
the fine grain pipelining means. Sure. So if you think about the very simple example I gave a minute ago, where you're just doing a count, for example. So each task, so when I say a task, that's a unit of work that's running on a single machine. In that example, each task would be counting all of the entries in one part of the data set. Typically, the data set would start off being stored on disk. So the most simple version of the task, which is not how Spark works, but just to provide an example, would first read all of the data from disk, and then it would add up all of the data. So Spark does this. It's not exactly fair to call it an optimization because essentially every system has been doing it. But what Spark does is it will parallelize reading the data from disk with actually doing the computation. So it might read a couple of words from disk and then start counting those. And while it's doing the count, it will keep reading more data in the background. So this is what's called fine-grained pipelining. And it's something that's been done in sort of all modern systems. And it does improve performance because you're using many resources in parallel. It's been considered this thing that's sort of fundamental to providing good performance. But the challenge is that it makes it much more difficult to understand what's going on because the task's resource usage is changing very quickly. Like first, I might be stuck. Well, first, I'm always going to be stuck on disk because I have to read that first bit of data before I can do any processing. But then later on, the task may be bottlenecked on CPU because that's actually the thing that's more expensive. Uh-huh. And to illustrate this, some of these tasks, they're overlapping, right? While you're still reading, there's computation happening and that can be during the same time, right? Yes. Yeah, exactly. So you have these two things that are happening at the same time that together makes things difficult to reason about performance. The first is that one task is doing a bunch of things at the same time. Like even one task is doing computation and using disk at the same time. But then the other thing that's adding complexity is that each machine is typically running many tasks and those tasks may all be using the same disk. So my task might be slow because I'm using a lot of disk. But it might also be slow because you're using a lot of disk and your task is running at the same time on the same machine. So these different factors become very difficult to untangle if you're trying to understand what's going on. To provide clarity about performance, like you mentioned, in this case is difficult to see. And to illustrate this potential, you worked on Apache Spark and proposed decomposing these jobs that we just talked about into monotasks. Can you explain what monotasks mean? So the basic idea was to just do one thing at a time. So instead of having a task that uses, say, network or say disk and compute at the same time, instead have the task do all of the disk read first and then all of the computation. And each of these, the word monotasks is because the idea was to break something into these units of work that each do just one thing. So just use the disk, for example. Intuitively, this seems like something that might make things much slower because I used to be using the resources at the same time and now I've serialized everything where I'm doing all of the disk first and then all of the computation. But the sort of deeper insight of this project was that in current workloads, there are so many tasks running at the same time that you can still get good performance from the system as a whole because now my network, for example, is overlapping with your disk. So as you put different users' workloads together, you can still get very good throughput from the system as a whole. And one thing I wanted to clarify about monotasks is this idea that they use one CPU, one network, and one disk. Can you explain what this means? 
Yeah. So for a disk, it's easier to think about. Like it means that the task is only reading from disk and it's only reading from a single disk. So if you think about Spark, for example, is based on the JVM and the Java virtual machine and Spark needs to read data from disk that's stored as a bunch of bytes. And then eventually the data needs to end up in memory as some kind of Java object. So it needs to be deserialized from a bunch of bytes into some Java object. And when I say that a task uses only disk, what that means is the task only uses one, it only reads from one disk and it only does the disk read. So it doesn't do any of that deserialization. And if you measured the resource usage of just that one task, it would be using only the disk, no CPU or network. And just to clarify, you mentioned that at first you might think, oh, this is going to affect performance because it sounds like now it's more serializing it. But it doesn't affect performance because, for example, my task can be using CPU and your task reading from disk. Is that correct? Like there's still usage happening during the same time, but from different resources? Yeah, exactly. So in the old world, a machine would be using many resources because just one person's task was using many different resources. In this new world with monotasks, the machine is still using multiple different resources, but it's because a bunch of different tasks are all overlapping. One task is using CPU and another one is using the disk, mm -hmm. for example. And there's this other trend that enabled this, which is that now when users run these workloads, they typically run a huge number of tasks. It used to be that if I had, say, 10 machines that could each run one task, I would run my workload as 10 tasks, just one on each machine. But there's this change that occurred a couple of years ago where it became much less expensive to launch tasks. So what users started doing is if they had 10 places to run tasks, Instead, they would run 100 tasks. And those, so each machine would end up running 10 of those 100 tasks. And the reason that that particular change helped performance is because it was more flexible when one task was slow. Like you could imagine one machine is really slow and only ran one task, and the other machines sort of pick up the slack. So the other machines would run 12 or 13 tasks to make up for the extra work. So that was enabled by the fact that it was much cheaper to launch tasks and was this sort of external thing that happened that meant now that there's now, once you're running a lot more tasks, there's a lot more room for overlapping between tasks. I see. And in the traditional approach, which we talked about earlier, where tasks are parallelized, we have schedulers that are in charge of assigning these resources. For the monotasks approach, in what way did these schedulers have to change? Did they have to change? So now they're, with monotasks, there's this scheduler on each machine that's responsible for scheduling each resource. So the way that things used to work is there was one global scheduler that made a decision for, one. when I say one global scheduler, one scheduler for a whole cluster of machines. And that scheduler would decide how many tasks to assign to each machine in the cluster. So it would kind of try and guess, like maybe this one machine should be running four tasks, but then this other machine should only be running one task because that one task gets running uses a lot of resources. And that was a hard set of decisions that that scheduler had to make because it had to basically predict how much resources each task would use. With monotasks, the scheduling problem gets a lot easier 
because instead you have these per resource schedulers on each machine and those schedulers know exactly how many resources each task is using. So if you have four CPU cores, for example, that scheduler can run exactly four of these CPU monotasks and then for any extra things, just queue them until they're ready. So it's much easier to schedule machines to get exactly full resource utilization on each machine that's responsible for scheduling each resource. So the way that things used to work is there was one global scheduler that made a decision for one, when I say one global scheduler, one scheduler for a whole cluster of machines. And that scheduler would decide how many tasks to assign to each machine in the cluster. So it would kind of try and guess, like maybe this one machine should be running four tasks, but then this other machine should only be running one task because that one task it's running uses a lot of resources. And that was a hard set of decisions that that scheduler had to make because it had to basically predict how much resources each task would use. With monotasks, the scheduling problem gets a lot easier because instead you have these per resource schedulers on each machine and those schedulers know exactly how many resources each task is using. So if you have four CPU cores, for example, that scheduler can run exactly four of these CPU monotasks and then for any extra things, just queue them until they're ready. So it's much easier to schedule machines to get exactly full resource utilization, but without adding extra contention where you schedule too many things on the machine. So instead of having this global scheduler, we have a dedicated network scheduler, a CPU scheduler, and a drive scheduler, right? Yeah, exactly. So there still has to be some global scheduler to assign work to machines, but essentially it's more okay if that scheduler makes mistakes because the resource schedulers on each machine will still handle queuing things if there's too much. Where in the old world, that global scheduler was the only place to make any decision about scheduling and it had to get things right. There was no sort of fixing things up once you got to the individual machine. In terms of performance understanding, can you explain how monotasks add more clarity about performance reasoning? What are the benefits of breaking it into monotasks? Yeah, so there are a couple of benefits. One is that at a particular point in time, it's very obvious to look at a machine and see exactly what's going on because you have these per-resource schedulers. So you could see something like, okay, in my cluster, on all of the machines, the disk scheduler has a long queue. So the disk is definitely the bottleneck. And then a related part of that is that now you have this information about how long tasks were waiting in line. So Uh, 10 or 15 minutes ago when we started talking, I mentioned this case where you and I are running a workload on the same cluster and I see that the disk use is high, but I don't know if it's because I was using a lot of disk or because you were using a lot of disk. With monotasks, it's very easy to have this measurement where I can say, okay, my task used disk for only five seconds, but it spent 30 seconds just waiting in line in this queue because somebody else was using it. So then the third thing that become simpler is that I know exactly how long my task was using disk because I got dedicated use of a single disk. So as I mentioned, the scheduler could say like, oh, you were only using the disk for this number of seconds. So you don't, this thing that used to happen before where you would have contention and it was very hard to measure because it happened at very fine time granularity. Now I know that I'm getting dedicated use of each resource when I'm using it. So as a result, I know exactly how long I was using the resource for. So it's easier to identify which task is creating the bottleneck. Yeah, and for each task, it's easy to understand exactly what resources the task used. So once we had that information, like I could say, 
I would know, for example, that my workload spent 10 seconds using the disk and five seconds using the CPU and 20 minutes using the network because the network was the bottleneck. Then you can give users this model for performance that's very simple and just based on those numbers and some simple arithmetic. So in that case that I gave where the network was 20 minutes and it was much longer than everything else, I could tell the user the network was the bottleneck and here's exactly how much faster you need to make the network in order to get all of the possible improvement you can get out of that. So we could give users these estimates of if they changed something about the hardware that their workload was running on, how much would their workload speed up in time? So one very concrete thing you could tell a user is you might be thinking about upgrading from the spinning disks that you're using to using flash drives, and here's exactly how much faster it would make your workload. Like it would make it 20% faster, or maybe it wouldn't improve the speed at all. And once you have the initial performance metric, this is easier to compute because you have that as a reference, right? Yes. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Yeah, that's good. That is very important. This The user just doesn't get, oh, you're using 10% CPU and 20 minutes at network. Then there isn't really no call to action on there. And they're just like, what do these numbers mean? Maybe they don't understand. But instead you provide more useful response in the sense of uh, you might want to try to use these disks instead or another machine and things like that. Today with the current frameworks, it's hard for users to even know this thing of like, oh, the network was took this amount of time and the CPU took this amount of time okay. because there's so many things that are all going on at the same time in the cluster that in this group of machines, that it's very difficult for the users to know for the workload that I was running exactly which resources can be attributed to my jobs. So there's kind of these two things that combine with monotasks. The first is that we can measure this all very accurately and tell a user exactly how many resources were being used. And the second thing is because we can control the contention more because we're scheduling each resource separately, we can make an accurate prediction. Like in the current frameworks, even if you know exactly how many resources your job is using, it's very hard to predict the performance because there's this effect of contention with other workloads that's very hard to control. And I mean, my job takes twice as long today as it takes tomorrow because it just so happened to be running at the same time as someone else's workload. I see. One thing that I'm curious of in terms of the prototype, which is called MonoSpark, is that I saw that it provides an API compatible with Apache Spark. And for this API, what I understand is it's seamless to the user in the sense that they provide their job and behind the scenes, this is transformed into a monotask. What are the steps of transforming their task in, into a monotask? So the reason that this is possible is because Spark provides this higher level API to users that handles all of the details of how to use various resources itself. So in the count example earlier, the user would say something very simple, like count all of the records in my data set. The user doesn't have to describe like, oh, first read my data set from disk and here's where it is on disk. And then when you're finished, do the computation. Spark does all of that. So in order to implement monotasks, we just had to change the part of Spark that does this pipelining where Spark starts reading stuff from disk and then does computation at the same time to instead break units of work into these monotasks. Okay, that's good. So it was just a matter of seeing where that part happened. Yeah, exactly. So this was a pretty massive change in Spark in terms of how Spark works, but users could still use that same kind of simple high-level API. Yeah, I saw that the change wasn't 
20,000 lines or something like that. Yeah, it's a pretty significant change to Spark. This was one surprise of the project is that sort of conceptually, the idea seems pretty simple to just use one resource at a time. And the thing that surprised me was how kind of deeply ingrained it was into basically every aspect of how the system was built. And so one thing that I realized from the project is that it's very hard to change an existing system to use this new paradigm for using resources. Instead, I think this needs to be something that people think about at the very beginning when they're building a new system and thinking about how the resources should work. Yes. Before we finish, I want to talk a little bit about Lightstep. I met some of the folks over at KubeCon in Copenhagen, and I found it really interesting. So I wanted to hear from you if you can explain what Lightstep is doing. Yeah. So in a way, it's very similar to the things that I was doing in the project that we've been talking about, where the high-level goal is to make it much easier for users to understand what's going on with their systems. And This problem is very hard today because systems are reporting a ton of information. And what Lightstep does is it makes it very easy for users to dig in if they see something like, in my example, that a particular task was slow, that they can look at an example of a task that was slow and see exactly what was it doing, um, show me a trace of how the task used different resources and what happened along the critical path so that I can understand exactly what happened. What are the other things that can be monitored using Lightstep? So one thing that's very important for performance is just to see how long things take. Like, how long was I waiting to read things from disk? But another thing that's important is to see various other dimensions of the workload. So one specific thing is to see how many errors were occurring. But maybe also to see things like, if this one part of my system was slow, what user was it for? And what part of the world are they in? And are there other factors that can help explain why it's slow? So it's much broader than the things that I looked at in my PhD work, which were all about resource usage and instead are broadening to see which of any of the huge number of factors are affecting performance. Well, Kay, thank you so much for coming on the show. It's been great talking to you about performance and large scale systems. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Thanks to Blind for being a new sponsor of the show. Go to teamblind.com. That's teamblind.com to download the app and connect with other employees from your company. Check it out. Check it out.